You cannot have this perfect hedonistic life. It doesn't exist. Even if advertising, media, and everybody tells you so, there is no life without suffering. There is no love without suffering. Today, I sit down with Ambassador Edward Habsburg, the Archduke of Austria and Hungary's ambassador to the Vatican. He is from the royal line of the Habsburgs and author of The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. It's the contrary of the message we hear every day now. You can be whatever you want, every day something different. This is something that won't make man happy. We're not built like that. In this wide-ranging interview, we take a look at what it means to live a good life and to die a good death. Is there something to learn from the ruling philosophy of the Habsburgs? What core principles unite the American founding and the Habsburg approach? What I see as a menace of globalism. Decisions are being taken not on a local level, not even on a national level, but on a supranational level. Single nations don't even have a choice anymore. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kellek. Ambassador Edward Habsburg, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I've really been enjoying reading your book, The Habsburg Way. Let's start with this. In the US and in Canada, and frankly, in many places, when you think of aristocracy, right, you kind of think of the Howard Zinn version, right, of aristocracy. Basically, people that made others suffer while they enjoyed the, all the luxuries of life. And this is certainly not the picture that you get from reading uh, the Habsburg way. And, and I want to give you a chance to talk about that at the outset here. First of all, I'm very aware that the United States are built on the idea, on the myth of fighting tyrants and uh, fighting against uh, oppressors. And, um, and aristocracy has a bad rap um, in, in, in movies, in books. Uh, but what I try to, uh, I try to make a case for seeing, seeing the positive sides of royalty in my book. And what I'm saying is that I'm in the, in the uh, privileged position to having been able to meet the current kings of Europe, uh, grand dukes of Europe, the current rulers when they were rulers in training. And these experiences uh, led me to understand that the, these people, the ones I've met, and I've met, I haven't met the English, but uh, all the other, I've met all the others, the Catholic ones, um, and the people I've met were deeply humble servants that from their earliest childhood were taught to serve. They grew up getting to know every, uh, every important player in the country, all the topics important for the country, all the fault lines, the dangerous topics, and they were raised all of their childhood and their youth to serve. For instance, if your country has two languages, you try not to prefer one of those two. If your country has Protestants and Catholics and you're a Christian ruler, you try not to show your preference too strongly. You try to be balanced. You are acutely aware of which topics threaten the unity in your country. But the most important topic of all, and the great difference to political leaders of today is, you're in it for life. You cannot go on and then after a while say, that's it, I'm getting out of here and I'm finding a nice plum job where I earn millions and I will never have to bother with this country again. Like, that's a temptation in today's political world. A monarch doesn't do that. A monarch is in it for life and they know not only that their life is, is bound to their country and their responsibilities for the country, but they know that their children, their son, their daughter, that one day will take over, will have to live with the consequences of their decisions. So this gives a totally different frame of mind. Also, a monarch will 
will have a different approach to the crisis because a politician will be always tempted to say which headline will help me getting re-elected in the election in one and a half years and which headline risks my career. A monarch does not have this problem. That's of course a danger in a way, but it's also an advantage. You can really think what is good for my country and not what is good for my career. And so that's a few strong arguments. Now, not all rulers were always like this, but I can really and confidently assess that all current rulers in European monarchies that I have met are exactly like that. Mm. You know, that's absolutely fascinating. And having, you know, lived in Thailand for a while um, under the king that recently passed, who was there for, you know, many, many decades, I can't even remember how long, but I mean, with, with so many coups, so many changes in government, it was actually the king that provided stability to the country every time. So I, I think what you're saying actually makes some sense to me. On the other hand, the current royal families and the current kingdoms and dukedoms are probably only a shadow of what, what monarchy once was. Um, the, the King of Belgium, for instance, who is a devout Catholic, signed one of the worst euthanasia laws in Europe um, because in his position he has to sign every law presented to him by the parliament. And that is not what a monarchy is about. If you are a glorified president with a crown, um, then this is not... So, it's not really what it used to be, um, but as I repeat once more, they are signs of stability. Uh, th their, their duty is to keep the country together and to not do anything that will hurt the unity and the peace in the country, which is quite a lot. Also, I want to add something. Americans know uh, kings and monarchs only from movies, mostly, and they don't know how it is to grow up, um, to have your grandparents growing up in the same monarchy, seeing the, the children of the monarch growing up, like in England, for instance, now everybody's seeing the future king of England as a little boy. They will grow up with that. They will see how his parents, Kate and William, serve, try to be gentle, try to be helpful, try to be a symbol of unity. And this gives stability, this gives a country hope. You've seen this in the, in the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, when people queued up 10, 14 hours in order to be five, ten seconds in front of a coffin, just a sign of respect. I would say 60% of that was perhaps the respect for this woman, but at least 40% was simply a sign of respect for the institution of monarchy. We see that with the coronation of King Charles in England. In the United States you never had a monarchy, um, in other countries not either, but if you meet people who live in a monarchy, they will have a very different outlook on monarchy than most people have nowadays. Let's talk about the sort of, you know, the origin of America a little bit, right? Because, I mean, essentially what the founders decided was that there was essentially the monarchy was oppressive to them. And that's what, you know, catalyzed the set of ideas that, you know, came into the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and then gave birth to this, which frankly, you know, a lot of European companies, countries, pardon me, then adopted actually as a great model. Absolutely. Right? So the, the problem, the obvious problem with monarchy is what, what, what happens when you get that despotic king or despotic ruler and you can't get rid of them, right? Yes, yes of course. And of course there's been plenty in history and, I, and I, I also certainly believe there's been the benevolent ones. Yes. Right. 
Yes, that's a problem. Uh, I'd like to talk about America. America is, is a great continent. I've just before coming here, I've reread um, Tocqueville's Democracy in America. I re read this at least once a year because America is built on a great idea and has a totally different and unique structure of how townships are built, how homesteads, how counties are built. It's, it's totally different from what we have in, in Europe. Um, and it's great. America has the seed of really being the land of freedom, the land of the free. One of the, the things that surprised me writing my book about uh, the Habsburg Way was how, how close some of the ideas of the Holy Roman Empire, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and of the United States are, which you, you wouldn't think. You would think, on the one hand, the despots and tyrants, on the other hand, the land of the free. There is a few key ideas that are very similar, very similar. And one of these concepts, obviously, is the topic of subsidiarity that I, that I talk a lot about in this book, that for me is, is one of the key concepts um, that, that made the Habsburg Empire great and, and functioning, and in theory, at least, the opposite from an oppressive tyranny. And let me just jump in, because I had never heard of this word before as I was reading, but it's such a powerful word. I mean, this idea that you let the smallest possible unit of government deal with issues that it can deal with. I mean, essentially, you can kind of clarify for me beyond what I just said, but it's a powerful, motivating idea, and certainly the idea behind America in many sense. Yes, yes, America is built from the bottom up. America is built homestead, township, county, state. State already as being very soft and very weak in power. The strongest power is on the basis. And federal level, very weak and very little power. And uh, this is something great. Why is it something great? First of all, because man is local. We are local. We, democracy functions best on a local level. The higher up we go, the more abstract it becomes, the less people feel that they're really involved in what's going on in the country. So the Habsburg principle, not under the name subsidiarity, is already visible in one quote in my book, um, Charles V writing to, to his son Philip II, when he was king of Spain, and saying, if you rule over several nations and countries, you have to respect their languages, their rights, their political institutions, their habits, local habits, and their peculiarities, or you'll be in deep trouble. This is sort of, the Habsburgs had this from the beginning, even from the 13th century. It was immediately, let me say this differently, um, our idea of empire is the idea from Star Wars an evil emperor suppressing everybody with stormtroopers and, uh, and, 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 and a glorious band of rebels that stands up against this. The Habsburg Empire was far closer to the empire in the Dune novels of Frank Herbert. The emperor had no real power. He had to juggle different houses, different dukedoms, different princedoms. With, and, and the emperor in the Habsburg, uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, had no great army, not lots of money. He only had authority by his sacred rule, and he was supposed to be the judge of all and keep all of this together, which was a complicated diplomatic game. And it only worked with subsidiarity. The moment you didn't respect one of the parts of this empire, there were trouble, 
there were revolts, there were conflicts, so you had to respect everybody. And whenever the Habsburgs did that, respect the lower level, which concretely means, I give you an example, the Habsburgs learned this from the relationship between the Habsburgs and Hungary. Hungary was seen as a, rebels, a rebel country, subdued and suppressed by the Habsburgs, always standing up for freedom, which was sometimes unpleasant for the, for the emperors. The moment the Habsburgs began to respect them, for instance, giving the Hungarians the right to call in their own diet, going to Hungary and let themselves be crowned king of, of Hungary, these gestures of respect for the local customs, for the local rights, these gestures made that the Austro-Hungarian Empire became great. Transferring this to the United States, uh, the, state, the United States are United States. We, we say this without thinking, but in the originals, this was states that have sovereignty and could decide things on a local level. Um, and we have seen in the last two or three years that some states decided to go different ways than what the federal level wanted. Uh, this is still there in the United States. It's a strong thing. And for me, subsidiarity is the ultimate antidote and answer to what I see as a menace of globalism. The idea that decisions are being taken not on a local level, not even on a national level, but on a supranational level, and that single nations don't even have a choice anymore than to follow things that have been decided by very other pow different powers. And if this happens, people lose faith in democracy, they lose faith in their political leaders, because they say, I can vote for somebody, but the decisions are being taken on a very different level. And what does it have to do with me? And democracy is supposed to function because the citizen is the sovereign in democracy. So listen to me, a Habsburg, saying these things. But um, so I see, you see, you see the, the similarities between what the Habsburgs in the best moments tried to achieve and what the United States stands for and can be. And uh, very important, I think, as I said, the subtitle of my book is Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. We live in turbulent times. And funny that the Habsburgs should teach us a lesson in the 21st century. Well, um, I can say that, uh, you know, my family has, well, you know, kind of a mixed relationship uh, with, with the Habsburgs because my family was in Galicia when Poland was under partition prior ah. to the end of World War I. Yes. My family was uh, uh, basically in the, pro in the part of that partition. It was Russia, Prussia, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, yes, of course. Exactly. But, you know, what I have to say, of course, we didn't like being, you know, under someone else's rule. Nobody right? likes. Nobody likes that. However, if you had to choose between the three, definitely Galicia would be the place where you would go. You know, you could use it. Essentially, I mean, the way I characterize it kind of glibly and simply is, they said, just give us the money and do what you want, right? Whereas the other places, you know, they were actively destroying Polish culture, destroying Polish language. Yes. It was, you know, there was active persecution. Can I give yeah. you an example? Yeah. The reason why uh, our last emperor, blessed Emperor Karl, was beatified by Pope John Paul II was because he, his name was Karol. And he was called Karol because his father had served in the monarchy and was a great fan of Karl of Austria, blessed Emperor Karl. For him, monarchy and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a positive experience. Therefore, he installed, instilled in his son a great love for this last Habsburg emperor, and uh, he gave him the name of that last Habsburg. And therefore, uh, Karol Wojtyła, as pope, had the dream to help this, this Habsburg 
to the, to the altars. So there were good experiences and bad, of course. For the Hungarians, for instance, being part of the Habsburg Empire was an up and down, was a traumatic sometimes, it was beautiful sometimes, and it was a long struggle to find a balance where the Hungarians really saw themselves being taken serious. And the end result now is that my Prime Minister Viktor Orban has written the foreword to my book about the Habsburgs. This is incredible because it's a step forward in Hungary towards living with the Habsburgs in a positive way. Well, so speaking of popes, you recently had an audience with the Pope, and so I want to actually ask you about that. But, but, but before we go there, um, you are the Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See, and, you know, of course, a very devout Catholic. It's very interesting to see that, you know, you, th you associate the Habsburgs with Austria. Now, what I've learned is that in Austria, from one of our past editors in Austria, that you're actually, it's illegal to use titles in Austria. Uh, so, you know, and, and you actually serve, you're, you're the Hungarian, yes. you know, uh, ambassador. So yes. how, how does that work? Okay. Um, I would say Austria has a um, cramped up relationship with the Habsburgs. They're not relaxed with the Habsburgs. On the one hand, they take the money because the Habsburgs are the number one product of tourism. All the people coming to Vienna, to Schönbrunn, to Salzburg, they come for the Habsburg heritage. On the other hand, Austria is somehow traumatized by having been a Habsburg empire, or at least a certain class of intellectuals are traumatized by that. And of course, after the end of the Habsburg empire, there were very severe laws banning all aristocratic titles, banning the Habsburgs from ever taking a political charge again, banning members of the Habsburg family for, for decades to re-enter Austria. So there was a very, very, uh, let's say, traumatic situation up until a very short time ago. Just, I would say, 10 years ago, a law was abolished that forbid members of the Habsburg family to ever run for Austrian president. And for a while that made sense, because of the trauma, probably. But the reason why the Austrian government abolished that law was that uh, a woman that married a Habsburg told the Austrian president, listen, up until five minutes before my marriage with a Habsburg, I could have run for president. The moment I was married, I couldn't anymore. I see some sort of racism here. <laughs> and in the end, this law was abolished. So the Austrians have a very tense and complicated relation and they still will need, I would say, at least one more generation to have a relaxed relationship with the Habsburgs. I feel it especially when I speak about Blessed Emperor Karl, the last emperor. Normal and calm intellectuals get angry and furious when they speak about him because he was very remarked Catholic and this is unpopular, I have to say, with some people nowadays. But Hungary, that sort of suffered far more under the Habsburgs, has now come to embrace its Habsburg heritage. I am the ambassador of Hungary to the Holy See. My cousin Georg is the ambassador of Hungary in Paris to the French state. We have two Habsburg ambassadors for Hungary. So in, in Hungary, there's a joke on the streets, which goes, Austria lives off the Habsburgs and Hungary lives with the Habsburgs. Mm. I am Hungarian citizen. My father was born in Hungary as a member of the Habsburg-Hungarian branch of our family. And therefore, I am, I've always been Hungarian, but I lived outside of Hungary until I became an ambassador. Well, what I'm trying to say is here is it's a very interesting 
turnaround of situation, we will hope that the Austrians will, with the time, get relaxed and more, more, more at ease with the Habsburg heritage. Let's talk about this principle of subsidiarity and Hungary and how it's placed in the EU. I mean, this is, this is the obvious question. And then we'll talk about your audience with the books. I'm yes. very curious to learn. Some people have pointed out when they read the foreword of um, Viktor Orban, in which he speaks about uh, the freedom fight of the Hungarian, the, the proud Hungarians against the Habsburgs over centuries, and the times when the Habsburgs opened up and respected Hungary, and the times when the Habsburgs suppressed Hungary. Somebody read that and said, he writes about his struggles with Brussels. And it's, it's a very good comparison between the whole topic of my book about the, you know, what is the EU compared to the Austro-Hungarian Empire? This comparison has been made. The EU is a supernatural um, union of, of sovereign nations that have united under certain ideas to work together under certain conditions, under a common idea and under common values. And uh, the moment this becomes difficult, like it did in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was when the single nation doesn't feel respected. One of the things I say in my book is, um, I believe in the, in the right of nations to sovereignty. I, I think nation is, is, is a positive concept and not a negative, like it's seen today nowadays in many times. But the sign of a maturity of a nation is its ability to participate in a supernatural structure. If, if, if subsidiarity is maintained and the nation remains sovereign and their sovereign principles are respected. And in the European Union right now, you have, to, you have the impression that a few of the countries in the European Union are not respected in their sovereignty because the moment their ideas are somewhat different than what is left, lived in, in Brussels, Brussels clamps down, tries to punish you, tries to find ways of cutting off financial flows to punish you for having different ideas. They don't call it that way, but that's what really happened. So this is like the Habsburgs clamping down on the sovereign rights of Hungary. Uh, it, there's so many parallels here. An empire or a supernatural uh, construction of states works if the center is weak and if the federal level respects the single, the single nations. Then it will work. And of course, one thing missing in the European Union right now that you had in the, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire is you had a symbol above all these uh, countries and nations. You had a symbol that everybody knew when you looked at it. This was this bearded old emperor. This is it what unites us. In the European Union, if you ask people on, on, on the street, what is the European idea? What unites us Europeans? What do we stand for? You will get very confusing and different answers. And um, one, one story that I'd like to tell uh, about this topic is uh, European Brussels leaders sometimes say that uh, Central European countries like Poland and Hungary don't stand for European values anymore, you know. And uh, Orban, when he came visiting uh, the Pope in, in Rome, and afterwards he gave a talk in the garden of the Hungarian embassy, and he said, we are sometimes accused of not standing for European values anymore, but I ask you if the founders of the European Union, Schumann, de Gasperi, Adenauer, would come back today, where would they find the European values? In Brussels or in Central Europe?
So it's, it's a question, what are our values? What do we stand for? And um, the Pope has just visited Hungary and he said in two of his talks, during his talk and afterwards in, in a Wednesday audience, Hungary is more or less the beating heart of Europe and the way Hungary handles things should be an example for many countries in Europe. That encourages me a lot, I have to say. Right. So, so what aspects? I mean, and he's actually been vocal about this. I, hadn't, I haven't covered this on the show, but tell me about the ways that, that he thinks Hungary has been successful. And I, I, I could share my opinion too, but, but I would love to hear that. Well, he, he sees that we stand for certain basic values. Some of them are very similar to what I write about in my book. We stand for, um, for sovereignty. We stand for traditional values like family, like faith. Viktor Orban is not a Catholic. He is a Calvinist, but faith and religious communities are very visibly present in the Hungarian public space. We are not afraid of showing a crucifix or a cross. Hungary is probably the only country in Europe where you're actively encouraged to wear a kippah in public. Our Jewish community is one of the most flourishing in all of Europe. Uh, new, uh, new synagogues are being built. Um, the, the government is strongly encouraging this. So you could say Hungary is a place where religion is visible in public space. This is something that in the western part of Europe has gone missing. Political leaders don't show their faith. Um, on the contrary, it's seen as a positive thing if you're totally neutral, have no supernatural leanings, have no transcendent aspect, but are totally neutral in your spiritual life. And this is not a good thing because I believe man is, as Aristotle once said, more or less, we are transcendent. We can't change that. And uh, the state should be a place where religious confession is visible. And Hungary does that. I think the Pope appreciates that, that faith is visible. He appreciates that we that Hungary um, right now helps refugees. People always say, Hungary is against refugees. But that's not true. Hungary is against illegal migration. Hungary was against 10,000 migrants crossing their border into Hungary in 2015. That's why we built a fence in order to control them, because they just came in without passports and entered the Schengen area area and could move freely in all of Europe. So the other European countries told us, you are nasty and evil, you don't love those migrants, but at the same time it told us, make sure that the Schengen um, border is protected. So, so the Pope has, has thanked us that we have taken so far 1.1 million Ukrainian refugees across the border into Hungary, into Hungary. Those who wanted to remain will be taken up, will be put into housing, will be put into schools, are put into, into workplace. We encourage employers to take Ukrainian refugees. It's the greatest humanitarian uh, action that Hungary has ever been in. The Pope has noticed this and has thanked us for our solidarity. The Pope knows about our help for persecuted Christians all over the world, which is also a part of the effort of help to help communities remain in their countries and not having to embark with, with, uh, with human trafficking uh, into other countries. Because Pope Francis also speaks about the right to remain, the right to remain and not having to depart uh, as a migrant. Um, the Pope very strongly appreciates our family politics. 
Hungary, since about 12 years, is actively and strongly encouraging families to have more children. Um, while we don't enforce an idea of stay-at-home moms, um, we, we offer the possibility. With uh, the, the subsidies that the Hungarian state gives, you can choose to stay at home if you want to, or you can work. Most Hungarian women go to work, both work mostly. But we have a system of subsidies, tax helps, and other things, and very many things, that encourage a family to say yes to children, to say yes to more than one and a half children, to ideally to say yes to more than three children. I personally have six children. We have been blessed with that. It's a great gift. Because Hungary believes that numerous families are a basis of a good state. A good state is built upon families with many children, because around the dinner table you learn all the virtues you need for a just society. Um, the elders learn to look after their younger siblings. You learn not to always think about yourself, but to take others into consideration. You learn that you cannot speak about everything, because youngers might be shocked. You also learn, I have one son and five daughters, so you can imagine that the talk around the evening table was always very, very vivid, very loud, and everybody spoke at top of their voices. The younger siblings try to say something once, twice. They don't get through, they cry, they run out. The siblings bring them back in, they get a voice. These are all things you learn around the dinner table in a numerous family. And these are virtues that will help these people to engage in a positive way in the state and to stand for a, for a more merciful, more solidaric state. That's why Hungary fights. Pope Francis speaks about the demographic winter in Europe regularly. In Hungary, he said, Europeans don't have children anymore. This country does something against the demographic winter. But also, another thing that we stand for and that the Pope is very, uh, was very thankful is we show, we, our political leaders show themselves with family. If you look around Europe, you don't see leaders with family. This is all singles or unmarried singles. Or if married, sing, married people, then without children. Orban shows himself with his children, with his grandchildren, and Hungary has posters, welcome to Hungary, family-friendly country. This, this, this may seem like political propaganda, but it isn't, because if you say, okay, we get married, we want to have several children, you are the paria in Western Europe. People look at you and say, what, you weirdo, you want to have several children, you go and work, you work more, you work more, and then towards the end of your career, you can have one child, to have the child experience. The idea that you would have a big family is very frightening because nobody else has it. A country that shows that having children is something positive and something that our leaders live, this is a country that, that can, can turn around the demographic situation. And I think we're, it's hard, it's slow, but we're ahead of all the countries in Europe in this, and the Pope has appreciated that. Well, and this is you know extremely important because you know if you don't have a positive growth rate in your country, yes. like you're essentially the, the the culture of that country is dying. That's how I view it, anyway. Yes. And you know, so you can you can deal with it with immigration, of course, which is what that's what the some answer that do. you always hear in Europe. Right. Migration will will settle that, but. Pope Francis has once said, if a country doesn't feel that they can, that they can integrate um, migrants from another culture in their country, they should think about whether they take them. And uh, Hungary, for instance, has never had 
a, a Muslim community. We have a homeopathically small Muslim community. Pour thousands, ten thousands of Muslim migrants into such a country, we have no experience with integrating. And if we observe how integration has worked or not worked in countries like France or Belgium or Netherlands or other places, we're doubly cautious on this topic. And that's why, why Hungary has been very, very cautious in, in doing things like that. And of course, has been bombarded and attacked aggressively for not being open to others. So Pope Francis, of course, always in encourages you to be more open, to have a bigger heart, to take in a bit more. And we, we listen to that. We listen to that. But we have our sovereign principles. And that's, that's how Hungary handles things. Talking about family, I just wanted to mention that this principle of subsidiarity, this struck me as I was reading, very much, it goes all the way down to the family unit, right? Yes. And th th what you were describing made me think of that, that what can you accomplish in the family? We're actually quite a lot. So that should be done in the family if it can be. You know, there's, there's debates here in America, for example, is it the you know, is it the, the public school system or the parents that are ultimately responsible for raising the yes. children, right? Yes, yes. I, I feel that one of my arguments for a numerous family is that you build a little fortress at home. Of course, this is frightening for the state sometimes. You build a fortress where you have a, a, a secure space where you can teach your children your values. Because out there, let's be honest, we're in a world where media, politics, and many, many forces try to tear families apart. And ha there is a strong urge to, to push people into being lonely in front, of a, a, in front of a screen, glued to the screen, all alone, without family, without roots. We have this, we have this, this bombardment of, of the wholesome unit of the family from all sides. But if you are a family around the table, then you have a, a space where those forces can't put their wires into our brains there. You can talk to each other. You can really learn those values from, from the bottom up. And again, this is a place to learn the reality of life and not the social media, the abstract ideas that are bombarded onto you through your phone and through your computer screen. So I think it's the antidote, the antidote to the crazy world we're living in is a family with many children. And, uh, and therefore, Every state should encourage families to have children, but children will, families will dare to have children if they feel that the state has their back, if they feel that the state cherishes it, if they feel that the state doesn't say, this is your private hobby, like collecting bonsai trees. No, what you do is you raise children, you bring them into society, you raise stable children that later will be responsible citizens. We, we appreciate that, we help you with this. You know, I'm just kind of thinking back to something you said earlier, which was that the, you know, the kind of the face of the emperor in a way was the binding factor, right, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You know, I was thinking, what is the binding factor in America? And what immediately came to my mind is a piece in the Pledge of, Pledge of Allegiance, right? Yes. Um, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yes. It's kind of the idea that's the binding concept. And not the current president, for instance. Um, the flag, I thought immediately of the flag. When I drive through America and I drive through suburbs, you have the flag in the garden, something that is very similar in Hungary, for instance. Hungarians have the flag everywhere. Uh, Americans have that. Other countries in Europe don't have the flag in the garden. So I think 
yes, the Pledge of Allegiance, also a strong idea of freedom, a strong idea of creating something together. America has a very strong idea. Europe seems to have lost a bit of that, I think, and therefore there is an identity crisis, I think, in the European Union. In the, in the, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was very easy. On your coin was the emperor. He had this beard, he was this old man, and your grandparents already knew him. And your parents were born under him, and you was born, and your children will still be born. This is a very strong binding element. But again, as you say, I don't want to romanticize monarchy, because it can go wrong. I just think that in the current world, it will not go wrong, because there are checks and balances, there is experience, and I, as I said, the monarchs I know are very different from those cliches. Well, just in another thing in the Pledge of Allegiance is one nation under God. Yes. Right? Yes. So the, 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 the faith or the reality of the transcendent is yes. features. Right? Yes, absolutely. And that's an antidote to the nihilistic world we're living in and to the, uh, the ideas that nothing makes sense. If you have a God above you, then there is more than just everyday life and the fight for income. Then there is, is far more. America has always been religious. Uh, it's also one of the strong things. You can be a conservative religious person, you can be a progressive, but it exists. It's also something that we, we Hungarians and Americans have in, in common. So, you know, you mentioned this nihilism that, you know, I fully agree we see the fruits of something like that, you know, everywhere in Canada, you know, my, where my parents came from in Poland, uh, but less so because I think Poland is actually similar to Hungary in this mm -hmm. respect, where mm -hmm. faith is mm -hmm. actually very, very openly important. This is kind of what I'm trying to get at, this aggressive secularization that you described happening in a lot of Europe. Yes. Right? What do you view as the costs of that versus, you know, because you, you live in a situation that is, that is juxtaposed to, to that? Yes. Well, I, I just feel that Hungarians know where is up and where is down, where, on which floor they stand. They are fiercely protective of their traditional values. And even if the wind blows really cold from outside Hungary, um, they, will, they will stand with that. Viktor Orban is an image for that. And I have the impression that in other parts in Europe, people drift. And they, are, they will be victim to every fad that comes along. Because you don't know where you stand. You don't know where up and down is. You don't know where you're going and where you're coming from. You know, the famous saying that uh, Otto Habsburg, our, our last head of family, always used to say, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going because you don't know where you stand. Mm. So that's actually your rule number five, right? The, I think it's rule, know who you are. Yes. I'm a strong believer in traditional values. Uh, we live in a time where uh, society, internet, politics tries to convince us that we can, we can wake up every morning and be something different and uh, change our identity strongly. and. In my book, I very much admonish and, and encourage people to embrace their roots, to embrace their family history, to embrace their values, to embrace where they come from, to learn, to learn about their history, to learn about the values that have shaped their parents, their grandparents, and to live up to that. It's, it's, it's the contrary of the message we hear every day now. You can be whatever you want, every day something different. This doesn't make you happy. Um, know where you come from, know your roots, and, and live according to that, is something that the Habsburgs did. The Habsburgs were fiercely traditional people. Um, 
they stood for values. They stood for, they stood for traditions, um, for a certain court ceremonial. They stood for old decorations like the Golden Fleece that stood for honor, that stood for chivalry. All these values um, made the Habsburgs what they were. They were fiercely proud of, their, of the family tree. They were proud of their ancestors. Every Habsburg who grew up knew who their greatest ancestors were, and they wanted to be like them. This is what I encourage people to do. Um, know who you are and live accordingly. And as I say, it's a countercultural message because we, we basically said, you don't have a past. You don't even have a set future. You invent yourself every day. This is something that won't make man happy. We're not built like that. I imagine there weren't like you know, crowds of people, you know, bursting down your door. Tell us the Habsburg principles. You know, where, uh, where did this, the idea to kind of codify these in a book come from? It was two things. Um, one of them was a friend of mine here from the States uh, told me, why don't you write a book about the Habsburgs for Sophia Press? I happen to know the, the publisher, and that would be something that could be interesting. And then I, I said, okay, why not? But I. I, want, I don't want to write a, simply a family history, because there are already very good family histories. Uh, I want to write something else. What could it be? And then I remembered that about a year ago, I gave a talk in a club in Boston, uh, where I was invited. And the man inviting me to talk about my family said, in this club, I wanted to warn you, not all are Catholic. So please don't sort of hammer your Catholic message, be a bit careful, and talk about the other things that, that, that are Habsburg values. I said, that's actually a good point. What else do we have apart from our Catholic faith and what immediately springs to mind, family and children and marriage? What are the other topics? And, uh, and I began to sit down, I began to think. I called uh, my father, I called um, my uncles. I said, what, what are our values? I looked into books. And I came up with a list uh, for, for the talk. I had 10. And you will see that some of the points in the books are pulling together two or three things. I want, seven is a nicer number than 10. And so I said seven. I said I went for seven values. And, uh, and then I, I, I proposed that to Sophia Press, the publisher. They said, yeah, go for it. And then the interesting things that happened after that were that I suddenly realized, wait a minute, these seven things are things that we don't see anymore in our society. And then the next step was perhaps our world would be a better place if these things would come back because they were good things. They were good things that sort of characterized hundreds of years of Habsburg rule. And then the next surprise was how close some of these ideas were to the United States. I, I was writing a book for readers in the United States also because I would say of my 60,000 followers on Twitter, a large part are American. They like me. I, I sort of, I bond with Americans. And so I said, wow, America and the Habsburgs are not that far apart in a few core concepts. Um, and when I now arrived in the States for my book tour reading, I, I gave talks about the core points of the book. And I, I saw Americans reacting and saying, we understand what you're saying. Uh, I, had, I had one talk, um, one, one online interview with a radio host somewhere from the deep south um, who said to me, I understand everything you're saying. I read this and I said, he's talking about me. And I said, wow, 
a Habsburg from Europe writes a book about Habsburg history and connects to someone from the United States who says, this is about me. So that was surprising. That was surprising. And, uh, and I think it's an interesting book. It's not too long. You can read it in a short time, as, as you have done. <laughs> um, it's, but you know, the idea is two things. You want to learn a bit about this, about this dynasty. I, it's a shameless love letter to my family. But I try not to hide the difficult side of the Habsburgs in that book. So you will learn something about the family. At the end of the book, you will have a few dates, a few characters, a few people that you will remember when you talk about the Habsburgs. You will be able to competently speak about this family. But on the other hand, I want you to take something home. I want you to say, wow, this is actually a principle I would like to live in my life, in my family, or this is something I would like to see from our political leaders. i give you an example. Uh, our last emperor, blessed Emperor Karl, only emperor for one and a half years, in the eyes of the world, a loser, took over the empire from, his, from, his, from Franz Joseph, who had ruled nearly 70 years, um, lost the war, lost the empire, went into exile, didn't manage to go back to Hungary where he would have retained his crown, and died one year later from a disease, from a sort of bronchitis, under terrible pain in Madeira. This is the ultimate loser in the eyes of the world. In our family, he's seen as one of the greatest, which shows that, you know, there are other ways of looking at people. And um, one of the elements that impresses me, apart from his Catholic faith, that I could talk for hours, but that's another interview, um, was his readiness to offer up his suffering for his people. So he, he was a devout man, and one day in Madeira, he was standing and looking at the church on the other side of the valley, and he nodded, and he said, yes, yes. And then his wife asked him a bit later, what, what was that about? And he said, I have offered God my life for my people, so they may be in peace and together. And when he was dying on his bed, and he was suffering terribly, he said this line very often, I must suffer so much so my people can be in peace. And I thought, shouldn't we wish for political leaders today that love their country so much that they would be ready to suffer for it and they would be ready to lay down their life for it? It's, it's difficult to imagine. I don't know if I would be able to do that. But having an example of that kind would say you, I think all people, we, we would love to have leaders like that. Because this is leaders we could respect. These leaders where we say, wow, these are upright people. They will stand for our country. They put the interest of the country before their own interest. And that's why I think that chapter perhaps helps us a bit to understand what we would want from political leaders a bit more. Nowadays, many people don't trust their political leaders. And I'm not saying that all monarchs were perfect, absolutely not. But we have one very concrete example in our family that is a great example. And Karl of Austria is probably the most popular Habsburg in the United States, this loser. And why? Um, because he connects with many people. I was, last year I was giving a talk in, uh, in October in Texas. There were seven 
a hundred people in that hall, and most of them were young and families, and they loved Blessed Carol. And this year, I made um, I made a Twitter poll. Um, I called it Habsburg World Championship. I began with uh, 16 male and 16 female Habsburgs, and I made polls where you could vote for your favorite Habsburgs. I always put you know polls, and then I always put short biography and picture. And you could you know eliminate two, eliminate two, go down. Blessed Carol won the male competition. So you must have something that is attractive to many people nowadays. Well, it's very interesting because one of your rules, right, is also you know, dying well, which yes. is very kind of you know, curious. And from what you're saying, it's very interesting because most many people would say he died terribly, right, from everything you described. But actually, you would say, no, actually, he died very well. If I, if I could die like he has, that would be the greatest thing in the world. But I don't know whether I'm strong enough for that, whether that is what God wants from me. But I want to say, dying well is a very important topic for the Habsburgs. Even if you don't believe in God, having your death in front of your eyes will make you humble because you will realize, I am not eternal. I won't live forever. I'm not the center of the world. As somebody once said, cemetery is full with indispensable people. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all think that the universe turns around us. The story of the world is written around us. If you have your, your death in front of your eyes, if you deal with your death, if you think about your death, and if you prepare for your death, for a good death, um, then your life is better. You become humble. I will give you one example to round this chapter off, and it's, it's a very good description of what, what the difference between my family and others is. Last year, when uh, Queen Elizabeth was buried, and half of the world population watched, that's many billion people, um, at the end of the, the long day of funeral, her coffin was lowered into the crypt. And uh, I think one trumpet played a, a serenade, it was beautiful. And uh, the master of ceremonies read her titles. Very touching. And I thought, not bad, but the Habsburgs did it better. And um, why? Because we had the same ritual. You arrive with a coffin at the church, and I, I saw it twice with the last empress, Tita, whom I still met, and with Otto, her son. And the master of ceremonies knocks at the door of the church where the crypt is. And the Capucin priest uh, says, who is there? And then he says, Zita, empress of Austria, queen of Hungary, queen of Bohemia, and all the title, 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 titles. And the priest answers, we don't know her. And then he knocks again, and they said, who is there? And then comes all the achievements of the deceased emperor. And again, the voice says, we don't know her. And then the third knock comes, and he says, who is there? He says, Tita, a poor mortal woman. And the door opens. So the message that the Habsburgs, the emperors, with all their glory and their gold and their crown, are poor, sinful, broken human beings uh, that need that need mercy. That's a very strong message. And I think we can all learn from that. You know, reading that chapter, um, I really, it made me think about in Canada, which is where I, I'm from, where I was born, um, there's been this rise of phenomena. And it was, I was kind of under the radar for me of this medically uh, assisted suicide. Deeply right? shocking numbers. Yeah. 
but not rise, it's like an explosion. Yes. I don't think that's dying well. Well, so, and, but clearly many people do. And that's, and, and I mean, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, I can only quote Pope Francis on that. Pope Francis says that we live in a, in a society, he says, discarto, of throwing away. And he says, uh, life, human life is, is, has become cheap, cheap and is thrown away without thinking. That goes for euthanasia, that goes for abortion, that goes for all these topics. Um, the Christian way is to accept your death the way it comes your way from God. You can never know where it comes, when it comes, but life is worth living even if you suffer. Life and suffering is not worthless life. Most people, most human beings for most of the last uh, ten thousands of years have suffered a lot during their lives and their lives were still great lives and worthy lives. The idea that the moment that you suffer, you should shut off this life, that's a terrible defeat. Most people who choose euthanasia do this because they don't find anyone who shares the suffering, who is with them, who listens to them. It's for many people the easy way out. The terrible decision, the terrible decision. It is a defeat for solidarity in our society if people do that. And, uh, and I, I think it's wrong. Uh, I think it's totally wrong. You know, one of the themes I think that's kind of developing here is that suffering is just an inevitable part of life. Yes, yes. As a Christian, we believe that, we believe that God left his, his throne far above to become a man to suffer and to die a miserable death to redeem human beings. This is our Christian belief. It's a very, it's a very strong message because it says life is good even with suffering. And there is no life without suffering. There is no love without suffering. You can't love someone else without taking suffering in. You cannot have this perfect hedonistic life. It doesn't exist. Even if advertising, media, and everybody tells you so, there is no love without suffering. There is no life without death. Any final thoughts as we finish? As I said, read the book. Um, befriend my family. Become a bit of a, a part of my family. The Habsburgs were a really nice family. Um, you know, some families are famous for massacres, um, great conquests of neighboring countries. Uh, the Habsburgs are a family that is mostly family. Lots of children, uh, uh, alliances through marriage. And, but I think you can learn a bit more. You can learn a bit for your own life. Take something home. And, uh, and yes, and I, uh, it's nice to be a Habsburg. <laughs> Well, Edward Habsburg, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our talk, which went rather deep, I have to say, but that's the idea of your show, right? <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you all for joining Ambassador Edward Habsburg and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek.